I asked to be an entrepreneur, I asked to run my own company, I asked to have employees. It, sometimes it's difficult and sometimes it's very stressful, but at the same time, the, the alternative would be to work for somebody else and work in a company. And I'm like, that would be way more depressing than those moments when I go through a difficulty in, in the business. This is Debbie and welcome to another episode of The Offbeat Life, where I speak to inspiring individuals who ditched the norm to become location independent. We'll learn how to create sustainable laptop lifestyles from the experts that will help us achieve freedom from our nine to five. Hey friend, are you looking to land a remote gig ASAP? Well, did you know that we not only have a ton of online jobs you can apply to on our site, but now we are also sending them straight to your inbox. I'm happy to announce that we will be sending our email subscribers legit online jobs every Wednesday. We have done hours of research so you don't have to. If you want to be the first one to hear about the remote gigs we find, go to theoffbeatlife.com to subscribe. In this week's episode, I'm so excited to speak with Rico, who is the CEO of SourceFind Asia, a manufacturing consulting company. Over the last five years, his company has exported over $15 million worth of goods globally. So basically, if you want something made in China, he is your guy. He also releases weekly YouTube videos, Source Find Asia, and a weekly podcast called Made in China Podcast, where he interviews entrepreneurs and talks about sourcing, business in China, and Asia, and a little bit of lifestyle. So listen on to find out how Rico has been able to create success as a manufacturing consultant while working remotely. Hey everyone, thank you so much for being here. I am really excited for today's guest. I'm here with Rico. Hey Rico, how are you? Hey, what's up Debbie? How are you doing? I am great. So can you tell us more about you and why you live an offbeat life? Uh, where to start, man? I guess it's funny because I was actually talking to one of my best friends. It was his birthday a couple of days ago. And, you know, it's one of those things. You, you, he lives in a different country. I live in a different country and we haven't spoken to each other in, in you know, a few months since his birthday. So I sent him this lovey-dovey WhatsApp message talking <laughs> about how much I, I, I miss him and I appreciate his friendship and all that stuff. And then we started talking and then I remember the conversation kind of shifted to like, why are we doing what we do right now? And I was like, when I was 14, I remember going through a midlife crisis when I was, when I was 14. <laughs> that was uh, early. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm an old soul. I'm an old soul. Um, and I remember coming to this conclusion and somebody, I was thinking like, what is my biggest fear? Because again, questions I was asking myself when I was 14. I don't know why. I asked myself, what is my biggest fear? And I, I realized my biggest fear is being mediocre. And I, that is still my biggest fear to this day. And it informs a lot of like my decisions in life, whether it's the career path that I've chosen with entrepreneurship, whether it's living outside of Canada, um, whether it's the music or the movies or the way I dress. A lot of that stuff is informed by that fear of like wanting to be different and not mediocre. So I guess that does that answer your question without going into the story, obviously, but just like, a, you know, that's kind of the philosophy behind everything. Well, you definitely have a different type of lifestyle and you have an interesting way of getting to that point. Can you tell us what exactly you do now and how did you prepare for this journey to, to make this change, to leave Canada? And now you're in Asia yeah. with this incredible business that has been doing so well for you. 
Yeah. So uh, I guess it starts with, I was born in, in Zambia, Southern Africa. My parents are both entrepreneurs. My mom had a couple different clothing stores, retail stores, like three or four different stores. And she was actually, she started going to China in like the late nineties. Like she was, she was, she would go to Thailand and China and mainland China and Hong Kong and uh, eventually Turkey as well to, to buy clothes. And then, you know, she would sell them in her store. My dad was a software engineer back in the day when you physically had to like go through code on a printed piece of paper, you know, that would be like hundreds of meters long and you'd have to go through each line of code. So he was in the banking industry and eventually started an internet service provider in Zambia. And then we moved to the States when I was 10. And then eventually moved to Canada like a, a few years later. So I think the aspect of me moving countries as a, at a very young age made it very easy for me to make the decision to move to Asia when I was 21. I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur from a very young age. Again, growing up with parents that are both entrepreneurs, it, was, it wasn't even a question for me. It was just like, this is what I'm going to do. Like, uh, Either I'm taking over my parents' business, one of my parents' businesses, or I'm going to start my own business. So you know, towards the end of college, you start asking yourself, like, you, you start getting the questions, like, what are you going to do? Are you going to get a job and all that stuff? And I was like, I just, I don't like working for people. I don't like people telling me what to do. So I, was, I went down this rabbit hole on forums about travel and business and stuff. And then I came across this um, YouTube channel called The Elevator Life, which is now called Enter China. And it was these two dudes from Portland, Oregon, who had moved to China immediately after they finished college and were doing, they had, a, they had done sourcing like what I do. They'd had some successful six figure crowdfunding campaigns on Kickstarter. They were importing wines from, from Oregon to, to China. And I just ended up watching like a hundred something videos that they had on the channel. I watched every single video. And, and then I just came to the conclusion. I was like, I'm moving to mainland China um, to, mm -hmm. to, to kind of pursue what they're doing. And I, I'll obviously talk a little bit more about the journey, but I run an import-export business out of mainland China called Source Wine Asia. And me moving to China prompted that situation to happen. Wow. So basically after, after college, the summer after college, I'd saved up some money and then I moved to Guangzhou. That was September 2014. That is incredible. And I don't know if with you, but talking to a lot of people who want to do something similar, who want to get into an entrepreneurial lifestyle, preparing for this is a really scary thing, right? It's kind of like, oh my gosh, I know I want to do this, but it's really scary. I know we yep. have so much content that we could watch and this YouTube channel really inspired you, but how did you actually take that first leap and that first step? But I know that you got great examples from your parents, so that probably made it a little bit more, not, I wouldn't say easier, but you would see it as something that is doable compared to someone who hasn't had anyone do it in their family before. So how did you make sure that this journey that you were going to take, because it is a huge leap, right? Even though you had yeah. this example from your parents as a person who just left college to completely leave, to go to this country that you didn't know the language. I mean, I could be wrong. Nico, did you know Chinese? <laughs> I see. That's a that's a funny story. So uh, I actually took a introductory course to Mandarin. It was like a three month course 
way before I decided to move to China. I knew I would eventually go to China at some stage. I just knew I was like, I want to live in Asia. I want to you know, travel around the world. So I knew China was on my radar. But I took that introductory course just so that I could go, you know, hit on like international students like at my school i was like <laughs> of course <laughs> or 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 be like at a nightclub and be like hey you know i can speak mandarin you know like, <laughs> <laughs> to look cool about it hey <laughs> exactly yeah yeah it was that was the that was the main thing but i little did i know that i you know i ended up moving to china like a year and a half after that so my introductory course to, to mandarin helped me a lot when i first got to china but then i actually i actually studied mandarin like when i got to china i actually went to a chinese university to study mandarin so, I mean, to answer your question, in terms of taking the leap, I think, again, it's like I I wasn't scared um, because of my parents, because I'd moved countries, you know, two, three times. And also, by the way, before that, I moved schools uh, a bunch of times when I was like, you know, eight, 10 years old or whatever. So I just kind of got used to like, oh, you move places, you meet new people. Like I wasn't really stressed about it. And I'd been to China before on vacation. I'd been to Hong Kong and I'd been to mainland China. So I kind of knew what to expect to a certain extent. But also what I did was I'm a big fan of Tim Ferriss. And Tim Ferriss had, uh, I don't remember the article, but he was he was talking about, you know, when people want to make a decision um, and they're scared of the consequences of that decision, you know, how to kind of overcome that fear. And he basically said, you should just write down the pros and cons. And what you end up finding is what is the worst case scenario? Like literally even just write down what is the worst case scenario? Worst case scenario is never as bad as you think it is. So that's what I did is like I wrote down, okay, if I move to China and I completely fail and I have to come back to, to Toronto, what is the worst case scenario? Worst case scenario is I get a nine to five job or I have to like work for my parents. Mm. Yeah. And I was like, it's not... It's not that bad. Yes, I'll be embarrassed. Yes, because a lot of my friends are like, what the fuck are you doing? Why would you move to China? You know, what is what is a Guangzhou? You know, all that stuff. And I was like, ah. I was like, yo, like Guangzhou is literally four times the size of Toronto. Like, you know, I was like, I was, I was like, are you guys, okay, whatever, you'll see. So, but yeah, no, I, I just, I kind of, I kind of looked at that. I was like, yeah, I would be embarrassed from the social aspect uh, of, with the people that, were sort of doubting that I would be successful or doubting that it was a good idea to go there. But in terms of like my career and stuff like, I mean, the social thing, people get over these things over, you know, after a few months, whatever, it's not going to be a big mm-hmm. deal, but career wise. Yeah. I would just, I would just get a job and, and save up some money and probably start some other entrepreneurship venture a little bit down the line. So that's kind of how I, I decided to take the leap. And then another thing is I think one mistake that people make is they always focus on like the most successful people as their idols, as opposed to finding people that are maybe like one or two years or three years ahead of them. Mm. So for me, the elevator life or into China guys was that for me, I saw guys that were, you know, four years older than me who were maybe three years or so ahead of me in terms of their, you know, business life. And, well, I guess maybe a little bit more like four years uh, ahead of me in terms of their business and success and stuff like that. And I was like, I could see the blueprint because you could see the the first videos that they had on their channel where they didn't know, you could tell they didn't really know what they were talking about, right? And then you see the progression over the course of three years and you see them start various businesses and fail and all that stuff and, and then get to a stage where you know, they are who they are at that, that moment when I, when I found them on the channel. So that was inspirational for me because it's like, I just 
I was like, if they can do it, I can do it. So I, I feel like that's another aspect is try to find people um, that, and I mean, within this day and age with YouTube and, and all the content that's out there, there's definitely going to be people that are doing what you want to do that are not a Tim Ferriss, that are not a Joe Rogan or, you know, Elon Musk. Like it's good to pay attention to those people and to take lessons from those, the, the giants, but it's also important to just find people that are a few years ahead of you. Cause then you really see the nitty gritty of, what it takes and what they're doing and, and sort of the mentality. It's interesting how I've spoken to a lot of different online entrepreneurs and location independent people and probably 60% was inspired by Tim Ferriss, whether his books or articles or his podcast, because he's just pretty much one of the first people that really went out there and started telling people about this. And going back to when you were talking about the strategy with the pros and cons, I am a huge list person. So I actually, my fiance and I just did a pro and con to like, we just signed one of the biggest deal we probably ever made with our business together. And -hmm. there was so much fear to it, Rico. Oh my gosh, I can't even tell (laughs) you like all of the fear that was happening to it. And we did that pro and con list. And that was it was it was part of the fear like the the being afraid of being stuck with the golden handcuffs yeah well that and also like again like you said like the consequences what if this fails like what if this happens like there's so much that we put into our head before it even happens but it's good to actually do that and put it in writing like you were saying because you can do something about it right like what should we do and also One of the things that's really great about entrepreneurs is that there's always a problem that we have to solve and we become really creative along the way. And then we learn so much from it. So all of the cons that we had, we were like, okay, what can we do to solve that? So those pros and cons are so helpful and it actually helps you solve those issues that are in your con list. (laughs) Yep, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. And yeah, with with finding people who are reachable instead of uh, like making it unachievable for you, that is definitely one of the biggest keys to staying and having longevity. Because you know, Rico, there's so much online, especially in social media, that just makes you feel like shit most of the time because you're like, I can't get to that point. This person is too ahead, and all you see are like the great things that are happening, but again, we don't really see what that person had to go through. And for someone like a Tim Ferriss or an Elon Musk, like, okay, that's just beyond, you know, anything we feel like we can achieve if you do it that way. Yeah. And I mean, even Tim Ferriss has talked about that uh, a lot. He's like, look, I started with, I started with nothing. It's not like I was born into a rich family and my dad gave me a giant loan. It's like, I also started with nothing. It's just, Mm. you found me at this stage. So you guys don't see the progress. It's funny. It's actually happened to me because mm-hmm. after a few years of being in China and, and the business, I started the business in my second year in China and uh, I hired full-time employees when we moved into an office. It was like a year after the, the company started. One of my employees was like, I was, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty open with my staff and maybe at the time I was a little bit more 
friendly than I am now. Like and now, I, I guess I, I play a little bit more of the, the the boss role. But I we would sit down and we have these like social conversations over lunch or or dinner or whatever. And my employee was making fun of me, and she was like, she was saying how, oh Rico, you know, you have such an easy life. And I was like, what does that mean? She was like, well, you know, you take like Ubers everywhere. You know, you do take an Uber to the gym. You have like an assistant that helps you with ordering your food and and all this stuff. And it's like, you don't cook, you have a, a maid at your apartment and all that stuff. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, that, but that's you seeing me now after three years. Mm-hmm. Like three years ago, I was living in a fucking shitty apartment where I was paying $150 a month that was cockroach infested. And I was sleeping on a, on a paper thin mattress. <laughs> like that could barely fit me by the way um and no heater in in the apartment and, and guangzhou winters are like bitter cold so i was like yeah no you're seeing me now but you haven't seen the journey you know like you haven't seen where i was that time period and how i i got to this stage that's one of those things is people always like when they see you at a certain level they don't really realize what it was like you know early in the early days so let me ask you this right when you were at that point, even now, right? Even now, as three years later, that you're doing really well with your business. Yep. When you are faced with something that is a setback or just a really big hurdle for you, and I know for me, it makes me step back and really reevaluate am I doing this the right way? Because whether you're successful or not, it's still going to keep happening, right? And I feel like the more you succeed, the more hurdles you actually start facing. And they're definitely different, but you're still facing them. More money, more problems. <laughs> exactly. How do you deal with that, Rico? Because it really takes a very special person. And that's why there's only a certain amount of people that could really make this into a success because it really brings you down sometimes, right? You know this. It's like just when you feel like you're, you're hitting gold, something blocks you again. And as an entrepreneur, there's always something that's constantly breaking you down. How do you keep going when that happens and you're just like, oh my gosh, <laughs> what am I doing? Yeah, that's a that's a, that's a good question. I'm, I'm, there's so many different ways I could go with that. I guess the first thing is I always try to remember where I came from. I always I always try to remember what the alternative is because at the end of the day, it's that it's that it's that aspect of like um, heavy is the head that wears the crown, mm. right? I asked for this. I asked to be an entrepreneur. I asked to run my own company. I asked to have employees. So I can't really, I, it, sometimes it's difficult and sometimes it's very stressful, but at the same time, the, the alternative would be to work for somebody else and work in a company. And I'm like, that would be way more depressing than for me personally, uh, no disrespect to anybody that's in a nine to five or whatever. But um, for me, that would be way more depressing than those moments when I go through a difficulty in, in the business. Another thing is I really enjoy problem solving. So when there is an issue in, in, in our company and then I come up with a solution. That is, I get a high from that. You know, like I really enjoy that. It's kind of, I, I ask my staff sometimes like when we've had like really difficult things that were going on, um, maybe during Chinese New Year, for example, like there's there's a ton of shipments going out because, you know, we know the factories are going to close and, 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 you know, our clients want the shipments to go out before Chinese New Year because China is essentially closed for a month. And so there's like a lot of pressure to get these things out. And then you hear, hey, there's a delay for uh, by three days because the factory made a mistake with production or whatever. 
and then we have to be like on the on calls with the factory and on calls with our clients and it's just like a you know two day storm and i'll have moments where literally in the middle of a storm i'll turn to my staff and i'm like is it weird that i'm enjoying this is it is it (laughs) (laughs) like everybody's super stressed and like running around and you know all this stuff and i'm like i'm actually enjoying this craziness like i feel alive right now Um, you have an adrenaline rush it's like a drug right (laughs) yeah exactly and then when we come out of it and we've succeeded i'm like that's one of the best feelings in the world so there's a little bit of that is like i try to remember where i came from then that ultimately makes me remember that i'm I'm in a, a better position now than i was then and then the the same at the same time i do enjoy you know the the drama a little bit i enjoy the problem solving aspect and it's also never as bad as you you think it is you know it's it's never really as bad as you think it is at the end of the day yeah let's go back to when you first started rico when you were just trying to figure out how to make things work how did you actually land your first client for your business okay so when I moved to China, I started teaching English and I was also studying Chinese at the same time. So I I, I joined Enter China. They they created like a membership form. So I actually joined. I was very lucky. Like my best friends, my my seven eight best friends from Toronto, they paid for the membership at the time. It was like five hundred dollars. I had saved up like four grand in savings, and that was supposed to last me six months. So there was no way that I could, I could uh, use the $500 to join the enter China thing, but they paid for it, which was awesome. So when I arrived, um, I ended up connecting with Tim and Nick, who were the founders. And after a while of me being in China, like I was doing my thing, I'm, I'm studying Chinese, I'm starting to teach English. I would just like touch base with the community and try to do some virtual stuff. So like, for example, I started a mastermind group. Masterminds was a big game changer for me. When I was in college, I I got into my first mastermind group and it made me realize how much more work I could do in a week than I thought. Because a lot of times I would be, you know, I'm in college, whatever, I'm taking weekends off. And I remember there was one thing I was trying to do. I was trying to create a website and it, it taken me like months of, I was procrastinating for months. And then I started the mastermind thing and they were like, your goal this week is to finish this website by next week, Sunday. So in the next seven days, because we had our meetings on Sunday. And I was like, I was taken aback. And I was like, wait, I've been trying to do this website thing for like months. And now I have to do it in seven days. And I, for sure that week, I still procrastinated. But uh, <laughs> when it came to Saturday evening, I was like, well, I can go out with my friends right now or... I can bang out this website and I have the mastermind meeting tomorrow morning. So let's do it. So I ended up just like staying up, worked on the website, you know, 10 hours, 12 hours straight, finished the website and then had the mastermind thing. And that was like a big switch in my brain, which was like, dude, you waste a lot of time procrastinating. And also if you sit down on the weekends, you have Saturday, Sunday off. Like if you actually just worked on those days, like how much more stuff could you get done? Because obviously I'm studying during the week and all that stuff with school and and things and then my part time jobs. But you know Saturday Sunday night I would usually go out. So I, Friday Saturday night I would usually go out. So it's like if you stayed home and worked instead, you know how much more productive could you be? So that was a big thing for me with the masterminds. So I started doing masterminds with Enter China. Like I, I put together a small group of of people that were around my age and in the same 
sort of space trying to figure out things. I didn't know at the time, but the founders of Interchina noticed that. So my business partner, my current business partner, China Mike, he reached out to the founders of Interchina and he was kind of in a stage where he was restarting his company. He had like shut down everything, shut down his offices and all that stuff. Was still getting interest from from clients for sourcing. So he reached out to them and said, hey, I'm looking for like basically you know, young blood. I'm looking for somebody who is like hungry, who's down to, who is in China, wants to start a business, like is interested in manufacturing. And then, you know, they gave him a couple options and I, I was one of them. And uh, yeah, I just, I, I met him and, and at the, around the same time, my one of my best friends in Toronto, he has a company called Smart Teacher Prodigy, which is like a, it's basically Pokemon meets math. It's a, it's a game. <laughs> he was trying to source toys from China at the time. So we were talking around this time when I'm communicating with, with China Mike. I just told him, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to this guy. We're thinking about, you know, restarting his company, Source by Asia, and uh, we're going to be 50-50 partners. And he was like, hey, look, why don't we set up a conference call? And we ended up having a call with Mike and my buddy, Rohan, liked Mike and liked his experience. And that's how we, we got our first client. So our first client was one of my best friends. Wow. Well, that makes it not necessarily easier, but like it's kind of kismet, right? It's like it was yeah. meant to be. <laughs> well, I, I think, I think, yeah, no, it was, it was almost like it was meant to be. But I also think it's, you make your own luck, right? Like I, I, I've, I, I think Tim Ferriss has also talked about this before. Is like people feel uncomfortable when they start a business to ask their friends and family for help or support. Mm-hmm. And it's who else is going to help you besides mm-hmm. your friends and family? first and foremost, like when you do something for the first time, right? Like it's going to be your friends and family. So I think it's important when you're starting something, starting a business, starting whatever it is to re as uncomfortable as it is. Cause by the way, I didn't feel a hundred percent comfortable telling Rohan about what I was doing. Like I kind of knew that me hinting at what I was doing was going to lead to potentially, you know, him working with us. But I, I, I was like uncomfortable at the same time. I was like, well, like, I mean, he knows me, he knows, how I am as a person. He knows how I think and how I work, my integrity. So if he chooses to work with me, then he, he trusts me. And he's a very smart guy, so you wouldn't make an emotional decision just because we're friends. So I think it's important that when you're starting something off, like you should lean, don't feel shy to lean on your friends and family to start your business and help you start your business. Even Rohan himself, he his company is like the fastest growing um, North American educational software uh, game. It's probably in the billion dollar ish evaluation at this stage. But he started off with his friends and family giving him a friends and family loan. That's those that the first investors in the company were his friends and family. So, yeah. you know, it's it's important. You have to start somewhere, right? And it's and a lot of times it's more uncomfortable to talk to like you said your friends and family than strangers because it's like if you screw up you're never gonna probably talk to those people again yeah. but yeah, yeah if it's your friends and family they're gonna be there they're gonna know your failure so i think that's what makes it really uncomfortable for all of us when that for sure happens one of the things that I really want to pick your brain with Rico is your negotiating skills, because this is the one thing that I think a lot of people are afraid of doing. Right. And it's not just, you know, taking that first step to 
landing a remote gig or starting their online business. But once they actually start talking to a client is talking to them and negotiating because, of course, people are afraid to talk about money. Right. Uh (laughs) So what are some of the strategies that you have used to land big clients to make sure that it's a win win for everybody? Um, I think first and foremost is just you have to get to a stage almost not caring if you land. I mean, you have to obviously care. It's for your business, but not caring if you land the client or not. And what I mean by that is if you care too much, you're going to compromise your values and you're going to say things to get the client, right? Whereas if you just talk the way you normally talk and you actually express yourself and you actually say what you mean, you're more likely to actually get the client because they'll feel the the honesty and you're not just selling your product. So I think if you understand the value of your business, so you understand what the value of the services you're providing, then just be honest. I'll, I'll be like, I'll, I'll give you an example. Like um, one of our biggest clients was a couple of years ago. He approached me the first call that we had, the, the first discovery call. He, I, the, he told me about a factory that he was working with, which I'd worked with before. And he was asking basically like, I want you to help me fix this factory, right? Like no matter how much it costs, whatever, like I, I'm, I have a good relationship with the owner and all that stuff. I said to him, I was like, no, like you should leave that factory. That factory is horrible. I've worked with them before. I know you don't want to hear this, but it would be a big mistake to continue working with this factory. And and that was just my honest opinion. I was just like, well, it, it, even if you work with me, or you don't work with me. I'm telling you right now, it would be a mistake to continue working with this factory. So I think that those those that's a very important thing is it's like get to a stage where you're just going to be 100% honest with your clients. Because the other aspect of this is like when you bend over backwards and you compromise your values, when things go wrong, who gets blamed? It's you. You as the the consultant or service provider is going to get blamed for those situations. So if you compromise yourself and you're not able to do the, the things that you normally do or you put yourself in a position that is uncomfortable, you're going to end up being blamed for it. So it's, it's actually better to be a little bit more stern um, with your opinions when it comes to that. Negotiation-wise, I think you always have to... I think you have to understand the person that you're dealing with. Again, going back to compromising values, like I will reject, I've rejected clients before when I felt that they were going to be difficult to deal with. You know, we have a sort of no asshole policy. You know, we don't (laughs) want to deal with, we don't want to deal with clients that are going to be, are going to ask for too much uh, despite wanting to pay a certain amount of money. And then, you know, they, 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 ask for a lot. So it's important, again, just like knowing yourself, knowing your values, knowing the, the the value that you're providing in your service and sticking to those guns, even if that means losing a client. Like when clients ask me to go to factories or ask my team to go to factories, one of the first questions I ask them is, what is the limit here? So you want us to bring the price down by 30%. Okay. But, you know, are you comfortable if we get it to 15%? Are you comfortable if we get it to 5% lower? And if we don't hit your targets, are we able to walk away? Because if you're negotiating with somebody and you're not willing to walk away, it's almost kind of, uh, it's almost a little bit of a pointless exercise. Like, I mean, if you don't have the the, the wherewithal to walk away, you're just going to, if that person has a more stronger value system and, and stronger viewpoint, you're just going to end up compromising to what 
they wanted in the first place. And and then from there, there's a weird power dynamic shift. There's a book called uh, Never Split the Difference that, oh, that talks a that lot book. about yeah, it yes. talks a lot about the same <laughs> the same sort of values and, and things like that. So, yeah, definitely check that out as well. But, yeah, I think it's just like starting from the, the, the basic aspect of us to distill what I just said is figure out your core values and stick to those core values and don't compromise for uh, don't compromise your values. Especially there's a lot of people that you can already tell how difficult they're going to be right in that first call. Like you already know (laughs) and you have to evaluate. It's like, am I going to be happy working with this person? Is the money going to be worth it? It's like, it's, it's most of the time it's not, it's really not. No, it's not. It's (laughs) not even, even if they're potentially high paying client and all that stuff, it's like, no, it's just not. We learned that lesson very, very early on, like literally in the first eight months of the, of the business. Should I tell the story? Like, uh, you know, unless... Yeah, go for I tell it. Story? Um, anyway, so uh, it was coming around Chinese New Year. And I, I, a lot of the crazy stuff that happens with our business is always around Chinese New Year because it's just like, just to give some background to the audience. So Chinese New Year is um, comes after the normal New Year which or the Lunar New Year, if you want to call it that. So January 1st is, is the typical New Year for the rest of the world. Chinese New Year is usually end of January or in February at some stage. What happens from a manufacturing standpoint is that everything gets rushed because people know that the factories are going to be shut down for a month or so. And also the factories can't really control their staff because the staff they're migrant workers so they come from other parts of china and they come and they they're on these like one year six month contracts and a lot of times the staff don't come back to the factories so they won't stay until the last day like some some factory workers just like kind of disappear you know two three weeks before the the factory is officially supposed to close so it's a it's a very turbulent time and then of course uh, shipping gets backed up as well because everybody's trying to ship out stuff around the same time this particular Chinese New Year was the first year that was running the company. Like I said, it was eight months in and we were not making that much money. I just quit teaching English full time. I had, you know, we moved into a, a, an apartment downtown, which was doubling as our office. And we just hired our first employee. So we were in a position where, you know, one month we would make, you know, $5,000. And then the next month we would make nothing. In another month, we'd make a thousand. It was like very inconsistent. So this client came to us in, I think it was December. It was that year, Chinese New Year was in the first two weeks of January. So I, I feel like it was like the beginning of December. Typically, if somebody's trying to start a production a month or a month and a half before Chinese New Year on an original design, it's pretty much impossible. Like I, we would, if you asked me right now, I would always say no to that kind of situation. But the client came to us and he, you know, he was coming. He was like, yeah, look, I've big Amazon seller. Like I, I make a lot of money. I've been doing this e-commerce stuff for a while. Like I, I know China, blah, blah, blah. He's like, I've been talking to this factory for, you know, two, three months. I've already set up everything. They understand my design. I just want you guys to manage the production and do quality control. So we were like, okay, okay. So that, that, that seems reasonable. Like he's, I mean, it's tight still, but like he's already discussed all the details with the factory and we're just going to start mass production and set up contracts and do QC. I think that's manageable a month and a half before Chinese New Year. And then he, you know, he had all these demands, like I need you guys to send me a proposal within the next 12 hours and, you know, all this, like a lot of different stuff that he was asking for. So 
you know, I'm like, all right, I'm going to chug a bunch of Red Bulls because I, I was talking <laughs> to him at night. You know, he's halfway across the world, so time difference. I'm talking to him at night. I'm like, all right, so I'm going to stay up and, and put this proposal together. Put the proposal together and listed things that we needed from him and on all the details, sent, sent it over to him. 24 hours later, he said, yeah, I'm ready to roll. And then he sent us a, a deposit. He did not send us, because in the proposal, I listed the, I made a checklist of things that I needed from him, did not send us the checklist. We started communicating with the factory. We find out that essentially the communication that he said was he just basically emailed the factory on, on Alibaba and said, hey, I want to make mm-hmm. this product. Can you guys make this product? And the factory said, yes. And he hadn't provided them design information. <laughs> He, they didn't even know exactly what the product was. They just said, yeah. yeah, we can make the product. So he kind of like roped us in and then he paid us a lot of money, a lot of money for the time. And to make a long story short, like a week, a week or so later, I'm constantly following up with him, asking him to send the stuff that I mentioned in the checklist. We got on a call. I pretty much could tell from the call that he hadn't read the proposal. So oh he didn't God. know the stuff that I needed from him. He'd oversold the, you know, the, the relationship that he had with the factory. So those, we basically had to do what, what I would say would be four months of work in the space of about a month. And on top of that, he was blaming me for not making progress in that week. My God. And I was like, okay, I don't want to work with you. I didn't say it on, on, you know, on the phone or whatever, but I could feel my, and like, I'm a very calm cool collected individual like i'd very rarely like lose my head and i could feel like the you know myself bubbling you know the the anger bubbling under the surface and i was just like oh this is this is bad like if i feel this way towards this person like me then clearly something is wrong and i've been asking this guy for this information for like a week and i've learned yeah. all these things about <laughs> you know stuff we ended up uh, trying to drop the client and became a whole thing and then he threatened to sue us and we ended up just we had to pay him back the money over uh, over a couple of months because obviously at the time we were not in a financial position to immediately pay back the amount of money that he'd, he'd given us but yeah it was a big lesson i know i'm happy that it happened very early on in the business because yeah I, I could imagine if that was a, a different situation with a larger company and the amount of money was larger uh, it, it might have been way worse but yeah this is an example of like not compromising your values. I compromised my values for that situation because of the money. And then it ended up backfiring. Yeah, sometimes those things are really a blessing in disguise because it's preparing you for what's going to happen next. And you have to really trust your instincts and also learn from that lesson and try not to repeat it again. So it is a hard lesson to learn, but it's a really good one, you know, because it really makes you reevaluate and decide that that's not what you want with your business. Exactly. Yeah. And so, I mean, now when we have, you know, clients that are like that, because I mean, I could tell even from the first call that we had, except I was so fresh that I was like, oh, you know what? Maybe we can make it work. You know, like I was kind of like, yeah, well, Super and, oh, yeah, we need the money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Whereas now when I have clients like that, like I will, after that call and then I'll tell my, my sales, well, now it's not me talking to clients, but I'll tell my sales guy, yeah, just send him an email and and, and say, hey, you know, uh, we just feel like it's not going to be a good fit um, mm-hmm. with, you know, the way we work and, and, you know, the way you work and, 
And the funny thing is a lot of times those people end up apologizing. <laughs> yeah. we, we've had that a few times where they're like, oh, you know, I'm sorry. I know I come across, however, in, in um, sometimes in, in, in conversation, whatever. But I'm just like, I ah, know I don't, I still don't think it's going to be a good fit. <laughs> it's like if we're, we're just starting it, it's already in a bad footing. So yeah, no thanks. <laughs> if I'm talking to you for the first or second time and it's difficult. Oh yeah. my God. Well, what is it going to be like when, when something goes wrong? Or something gets delayed because it always happens with manufacturing in China. There's always going to be some issue. There's always going to be some delay. And the most important thing is, is focusing on coming up with solutions. So if you deal, if you're dealing with somebody that's already complaining when nothing's happened, yeah, what is it going to be like when it actually gets difficult? Yeah, for sure. So Rico, since you have been living in Asia and abroad for a few years now, what type of international insurance do you typically use? Yeah, so um, my I've been lucky enough that my dad had his company and he had a, a Barclays business account and I use AIG International Travel Insurance under his Barclays account, which is pretty awesome. It's like 50 bucks a year. I don't know how long that's going to go because he's, my dad's retired now, but yeah, no, that's, that's pretty much what I've been using since I, since I moved out here. That's awesome. That's a lucky break right there. I wish we all had that. <laughs> Thanks to your dad. Right. And yeah, you know, yeah. I've been hearing a lot from many digital nomads and remote entrepreneurs who are living abroad, especially during this crazy time that it has been really hard. And some even insurance companies have actually stopped them and excluded things like pandemics or natural disasters in their policy cover. Hopefully you didn't have to go through that, Rico, but a lot of people have. So if someone were to fall ill and need treatment for like coronavirus, for example, or any similar future pandemics, they wouldn't be covered and they would need to pay for their treatment themselves, which is really crazy because we're already dealing with so much stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, in a time period where you know people are not making as much money as they usually would, you know, yeah. things like insurance are, is extremely important. Yeah. And then you have to deal with so much more and then not even just illness, but then all of the expense that goes along with it. That's why I'm so glad to be working with IntegraGlobal.com. They believe it's their duty to support their members in uncertain times like this and stand by them when they need them the most. They have no exclusions for pandemics or natural disasters in any of their plans. So if you all want to know more about their plans, you can check out IntegraGlobal.com and see how they give you the coverage you'll need and maybe some you never knew you would because look at what happened. Who knew this was going to be happening to us. It's crazy time right now, everybody. <laughs> hey, my, my insurance under my dad's plan uh, expires pretty soon. So I, I think I'll definitely be checking out Integra. Definitely check them out. They've been amazing. And I've had a lot of listeners that have gone to them and they really love their services. So I'm sure you would too, Rico. <laughs> So Rico, let's fast forward to 50 years from now and you're looking back at your life. What legacy would you like to leave and what do you want to be remembered for? Ooh, uh, 50 years legacy. Uh, well, I've been thinking about legacy since I was 14. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess, again, the, the, going back to the whole thing about not being mediocre and all that stuff, just to give some background, like I'm black and I'm African and Canadian and all that stuff. 
And when you travel and you're a minority, you definitely go through weird situations, weird questions that you get asked, weird reactions, in like places like China where, you know, <laughs> when I was teaching English in China, like a lot of times some of my students were saying, I've never spoken to a black person before. You know, it was like that kind of stuff where I'm like, all right. So then you almost, I, I think you can go one of two ways. You can, you can find it offensive. You can, and not to belittle people that get offended by these kind of situations, but you can find it offensive. You can take it negatively. Or like for me, I, I generally try to put a positive spin on everything that I do. So I was like, well, you know, this person, it, they're not coming from a place of hate. They just are yeah. not educated. They don't have experience. So I can either make this like a negative thing for them. Like I can be aggro and be like, how dare you say that? Like, you're not supposed to talk to people like that. You're not supposed to say mm -hmm. those things. Or I can make it an educational positive thing for that person. And then, you know, hopefully that Chinese person then, or whatever nationality, then, you know, tells their friends and, you know, all that stuff. And then they have a positive association with people that look like me. So that's how I always kind of approached Every single time in China or in, in Southeast Asia as a whole, when people asked me questions like, hey, uh, I, I didn't, there's black people in Canada. I'm like, yeah, actually, you know, and then I'll explain sort of the, the history and, and all that stuff. Well, how are you Canadian and also Zambian? I'm like, well, yeah, you know, there's a thing called immigration. You know, like I would just like, I'll just kind of like break it down. Yeah. Um, whereas obviously these are things that you don't have to explain to people in, in the West. So I think in terms of my legacy, I would like, to just leave a positive image of Zambian people, of black people, of entrepreneurs in general. I would like to just show people that, hey, you can be this, you can also be that at the same time. I think that's a big, big thing for me is just like, I always want to change people's perceptions because obviously there's a lot of stereotypes in this world. So I always, I always like to break those stereotypes. It goes back to, again, the mediocre thing. I don't want to be the same as everybody else. So that, that would be 50 years from now, if I have a student that I taught, you know, when I was 22 and she was like, Hey, you know, before I met Rico, I thought black people were scary. Now, you know, Rico's like an entrepreneur and all this stuff. Like I, you know, I changed my whole perception of black people or African Canadians or African Americans as a whole or Africans in general, um, yeah. that that would be a, a cool cool legacy to, to sort of leave behind. I love that you talked about that, Rico, because for a lot of different countries, you know, where I think we're spoiled out here in the West because we so many we see so many people from so many different countries, and we are privileged to travel pretty much anywhere we want you know, and we can experience all of these things. But there are a lot of countries that don't have that same privilege. So they've never met anyone that's outside of their country, their race. And it is every time you meet someone in those places, it's kind of like an education for them. And the way you go about it is gonna really show them what type of person you are and also your culture as well. And yeah. mo most of the time, what they see is really from the media and it's from movies that portray black people, even Asian people, any sub type of minorities. Movies, music, yeah. that stuff, yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's why. So it's a lot of times it's not really that person's fault. It's what they see in the media that really is going to to show them what that type of culture or race is going to be about. So you doing that will and has helped already so much. Yeah, no, I, I just think, I mean, it's an, it's kind of like, it's one of those things where it's a, it's a little bit of an unfortunate 
burden for people because it's like, well, do I have to be an ambassador for my race? Mm, yeah. And I, you know, I understand when people think along those lines. I just accept it. Like I just, you know, I think my dad kind of instilled that mentality in me where it's just like, yeah, you need to like represent the family and all that stuff. So yeah. I'm like, I just kind of, I kind of just operate in life. Like I don't want to embarrass my parents. I don't want to embarrass the family name. So that's also translated to like, I don't want to embarrass my, my race, but uh, I also just, I just want people to be educated. And I, I, you know, I also try to understand where they're coming from. Like uh, that's, mm-hmm. that's the reality is a lot of times when, when you have negative interactions with people, when people are angry with you or they do something towards you, a lot of times that has nothing to do with you personally, right? Like you have Absolutely. to kind of look at it and be like, well, did this person have a bad day? Did they just get fired? Do you know, they, there could be so many other things going on in that person's life that has nothing to do with you. And you're just mm. the conduit in that moment that they're releasing this energy on. And you can always choose how you react to that energy. You can either take it in and, and give negative feedback to them, or you can take it in and, and, and make it a more positive experience. So yeah. I, I, I just try to, I try to operate with that sort of, that, that sort of value system. It doesn't even have to be a racial thing. Like this is just in life in general. When I've been out in bars, there's times where, you know, I, I'm talking to a girl and I didn't know that there was a guy there that liked this girl. And then he comes in very aggressive thinking that I'm trying to steal his girl. And I'm just like, dude, like, I didn't know that this was your girl. Let me buy your drink. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I just kind of deflect the situation. Because I'm like, I don't, I didn't know that. Like, I didn't know that information. Like, let's it make this into a positive. It was on purpose, man. Yeah, let's make this into a positive experience for everybody. Like, you know I'm just I mean? giving so, you a yeah. compliment. Your girl's, you she, know, she's beautiful. A, she's a gorgeous, go. gorgeous woman. Like, I mean, you know, um, who wouldn't, who wouldn't want to talk to her? So, yeah, like, yeah, no, it's just like, go. I just try to. I try to approach like you're that. Lucky. Every, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, oh, you know what? I am lucky. You know what I mean? I will take that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thanks, guy. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I mean, you know, it's not always easy to have that type of mentality, but as long as 80% or 90% of the time you can get to that point, it's all good. It takes, <laughs> we all have it our good and bad days. <laughs> of course. Yeah. No. And, uh, but I mean, it takes a lot. I, I meditate. I release a lot of my anger through like kickboxing. Like yeah. um, when he, when I exercise, whether it's kickboxing or lifting weights, like those are the times when I really think about the things that make me angry, and I kind of mm-hmm. whatever is pent up frustration, <laughs> I release it in those moments. Yeah, and then I do I do yoga and meditation, which helps. Um, but in general, I, I am a pretty like calm, chilled guy just in general. So I think that helps as well. And you know, I guess that has a lot to do with how I was brought up. My parents had this whole philosophy of like not fighting in front of the kids. So I never saw my parents fight growing up. They always handled things behind closed doors. I think I've also taken that in 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 stride as well. Like, and I knew it because I talked to my parents about it later on in life. Like, I never saw you guys fighting. Like, what was the whole thing? It's like, yeah, of course we've had issues, but we just never wanted to show you guys. We didn't want you guys to associate. This is how you behave with yeah. your significant others and all that stuff. So yeah, I'm, I'm always the kind of person. It's like if I have an issue with somebody. We take a sidebar, we have an adult conversation about it. If it starts to get yeah. heated, we either take a break or I walk away and then revisit the, the topic at a, at, a, at a later date. Yeah, it's in a healthy manner, you know, and that also scars children when you see stuff like that, you know. So Yeah, for yeah. sure. You know, it's good it, on it, your people, parents. <laughs> people think uh, kids don't notice these things. Kids don't forget. Like you see things. 
when you're, you know, eight years old, seven years old, and it sticks with you for the rest of your life and informs how you behave towards your friends and, and strangers and significant others. So it's really important. It's really important to, to, to keep that in mind. Absolutely. So Rico, what are you currently working on that is really exciting to you? Yeah. So uh, obviously I run the manufacturing business um, from China and this year has been interesting because we've had our best year financially ever, which is weird to say during this time period where, where I know a lot of people are struggling, especially in the service industry. But we were involved with a lot of the you know, the PPE products that were exported around the world. So that was was pretty great for us. But then there was a lot of issues. There was a lot of problems that went on with that whole situation. So it kind of led me to think of putting together a course around, you know, how to sort of manage sourcing and manufacturing during this time period, during 2020 and 2021, during this pandemic, when people can't physically go to China. Like, Twice a year, there used to be the Canton Fair in Guangzhou and, and Global Sources in Hong Kong. And there's a bunch of other trade fairs in, in China. And all of those things are canceled and other virtual fairs, which is obviously not the same thing. And then, of course, a lot of people that have established businesses were you know, probably traveling to China a couple times a year to, to work with their factories on new products and stuff like that. So, you know, people really have to lean on their partners in China. So I kind of wanted to put together a course um, on top of that. The course will be paid, but what we're going to do is we're, we're going to launch a, a summit. So I'm putting together roughly, we're still early stages, so don't hold me to all of this information. So, you know, this is an exclusive for your podcast, <laughs> roughly about 10 experts. So we'll do like 10 presentations uh, from, you know, how to sort of evaluate your product and validate the audience to design, to sourcing to manufacturing to quality control to shipping to actually selling it on an e-commerce platform so that's going to be like a free virtual summit that we'll we'll have out and then you know if you go through the summit and you you like sort of the information that we have we're calling it the sfa summit um if you like that summit and you like the information that we're giving you then you can also pay for the course and of course we also have our manufacturing consulting company so if you feel like the work is not something that you want to do and you want to focus on other aspects of your business you can always hire my 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 agency to to manage your project for you so that's sort of the main thing that we're focusing on for the rest of the year it's also just because in general project management i think a lot of people are a little bit more cautious about how much money they're spending these days i thought it would be helpful to put together something that um, people could work on themselves. And I, I really don't see, I see a lot of courses about Amazon. I see a lot of courses about e-commerce in general. I don't really see that many courses about manufacturing, yeah. at least not by people that are running a manufacturing consulting company. Well, I guess not as many people do what you do, or at least will who are willing to share that information anyways. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I uh, maybe. Yeah, and also it's just like I think the manufacturing consulting business is a little bit of an it's like an older game. Like a lot of the guys that are in this are are significantly older, so I don't think yeah. they really are into YouTube or any of that stuff. So they're not really thinking about putting together courses. And the courses that they do have are very sort of corporate bland type of uh, of courses. It's like very um, old school. Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, no, I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to modernize that aspect of it. So, 
Rico, if our listeners want to know more about you, where can they find you? Yeah, just uh, go to my website, sourcefinasia.com slash contact us. That's the best way to reach out to the team if you're interested in in sort of the services that we provide. If you want to reach me directly, I think leaving a comment on our YouTube channel, which is Source Fine Asia, I read every single comment on the videos or, you know, reaching out through Instagram at Source Fine Asia, all one word. Perfect. Thank you so much, Rico, for sharing all of your tips and tricks and your story with us today. I really appreciate it. And y'all make sure to go to theoffbeatlife.com because we are going to be getting more information from Rico for the extended interview on how to source your products overseas during crisis like we are having now. Thank you so much, Rico. We really appreciate it. No worries. I really enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Rico. Make sure to visit theoffbeatlife.com. Again, that's theoffbeatlife.com to get the extended interview where he shares how to source products overseas during a crisis. Hey listeners, have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Lucky for you, I have created a new site that will help you learn how to launch, grow, and monetize your own show. I offer one-on-one mentorship programs and I'm launching an ebook, How to Create a Profitable Podcast, that can help you take your podcast from hobby to profitable business. Visit howtocreatepodcast.com to learn more. Again, that's howtocreatepodcast.com. See you there. Hey, listeners, thank you for listening to this episode, and I'm so thankful for your support. I would love to hear your thoughts on this episode and get suggestions on guests, topics we can discuss, and so much more. Feel free to reach out at hello at theoffbeatlife.com and let me know what you'd like to hear. If you like the show, don't forget to give us some love and review on iTunes. Thank you again for being a part of this journey, and I can't wait to hear how your location-independent story will unfold.